This podcast and the many that follow are proudly brought to you by our partner, Titleist, the number one ball in golf. Now, as it relates to earning an edge, our friends at Titleist have been the leaders since the early 1900s. And in order to compete and win at the highest level, frankly, there's no room for second best. For this reason, the best players in the world trust Titleist. I want to welcome you to the Earn Your Edge podcast. By passion and practice, we at Altus are driven to decode the difference makers that high performers possess, the ways and means they use to earn their edge, to create separation from the mass, to leave mediocrity in their rearview mirror and travel this pathway to mastery. Be it through nature or nurture or a mixture of both, the journey to uncover these things is a journey that we're on. Now, I've spent a lot of time in admiration of our guest in this episode, Mark Blackburn. As our paths cross traveling the world, and I know him to be cut from the same cloth with aligned ethos toward not only player development, but also human development. He's a person that really needs no introduction to the golf world. However, given our audience covers a wide gamut of demographic and also interest, I think it's important that we cover the territory of of background. So, Mark, I guess the most important question I want to ask at this point is, who is Mark Blackburn? That's a great question. I think it depends who you're asking. <laughs> ask your wife. You get one story and ask yeah, your ask my wife or another. kids and you're probably going to get a very different answer <laughs> than you do if you ask my kids. We're asking you. Um, Look in the mirror and who do you see? I see someone who's an avid learner, simulates information in the attempt to sort of perfect and master their craft and be the best coach, high-performance golf coach on the planet. I mean, that's that's probably a very vague but... Cliff notes, I wake up every day relishing the opportunity to learn something, get better to help the students that I have. And that's I, every time I'm in an interaction, I'm trying to, what can I grasp from that interaction to maybe take and help with my people, so to speak, my tribe of students. Wind it back a little bit. And you grew up in England. Yep. Grew up just outside London, Surrey. Yeah. You grew up playing golf and playing a bunch of other sports. Yes yeah, or oh, no? Yeah. Lots of different sports. What if were you they? could, um, uh, a better question would be what didn't I play? Okay. So I was born a jack of all trades, as we would say in England. I yep. played um, rugby, was probably my first love game. My dad got me into that when I was about five, and I played mini rugby. I and mean, we were pretty competitive as a team. And so I played that a lot, played football, soccer. Mm-hmm. Those two I played a lot of, played a lot of cricket, tennis, badminton, squash. I'm trying to think what else, like all the, what I would call racket and ball and stick and ball sports. Proper like, English sports too. Yeah. And when you talk about squash and you talk about cricket we're, we're, and rugby for that matter yeah. and football, European sport, it's yeah. right in the wheelhouse. It's so very just, proper English. Everything that you could, um, if you could play, I was far more interested in being outside and playing sports um, than I ever was academically studying or being inside. Now, if it was things, subjects I liked studying, I would, I was into it. But if it was stuff I was thought there was no use for it, as it didn't have any relevance to sport, mm-hmm. I was not really. Out. Yeah. And early aspirations were to play what particular sport were? I kind of wanted to play everything. It was like you you grow up as a fan of any big sports team. I was a huge Liverpool fan. So Kenny Dalglish, soccer, Liverpool football was like, I want to play football. And then it was like, well, no, I'm better at rugby. I want to play rugby. I want to play for Leicester as a, a mm-hmm. team. Uh, but then it kind of got to the point where I was, I got sick and tired, honestly, of playing rugby and getting dinged up, getting like, man, this is uncomfortable. Like, seriously, like, I like this game, but the 
older you got, the rougher it got. And then when I say rougher, it was just like, man, I just, it's like uncomfortable. I got to the point where it got, guys got really good quickly. Right. And I always played golf, yeah. but it was more in the traditional English way of, it wasn't athletic development, youth, we want to grow the game. It was, all right, you're going to come carry the bag for your father and you're going to kind of be around a little bit. We'll let you go play and practice afterwards. And then mm -hmm. gradually it got to the point where I was playing golf and playing a little bit more and I essentially finally gravitated away from I'm sick of getting up on a Saturday, Sunday morning, getting beaten up, playing rugby, not being able to swing a golf club because I'm sore to saying, you know what? I'll give this golf thing a go. What and I was never super, super good at golf. Yeah. But I was always like, always getting better. And I kind of, my handicap would like jump. And in this two year period, it went from being about a 36 to about a four or something. Like just Brilliant. from like, and that's an English handicap. So yeah, I sure. will say proper. like a proper <laughs> handicap. <laughs> <laughs> so your actually scores matter. It's not like I want to take my best five out of 15 cards. Yeah. And you can't sandbag over there. You no, can't sandbag in Australia. Every time you play, yeah. it's coming up. So when you get to like scratch or a plus handicap over there, it's like, you're actually, every time you go play golf at any golf course, you're shooting par or under par. It's not like, oh, well, I shoot 76 one day and the next day because the way the scoring system works, you go up or down based on how you play. So. Right. I thought that was amazing coming from Australia to the United States. You probably had this experience as well in your college experience that the reverence or the respect that an Australian or perhaps in your case, a, an English handicap carried in the context of what are you playing off, right? Yeah. Whereas the opposite, you know, the reverse um, irreverence for or irrespectful, um, disrespectful uh, level of an, an American handicap traveling foreign, right, to foreign yeah. lands. Yeah. Nonetheless, so you gave up on aspirations of carrying the three lines in your chest for, <laughs> for the English rugby team and the English soccer team yep. and the English cricket team. Yeah. And you took to golf. And you landed in Southern Mississippi. Yeah. it's actually, Well, I actually landed. It's funny. I actually went to school in Mobile, Alabama for two years. Mm -hmm. Junior college? Yeah, it's a four-year Baptist school, okay. which was a culture shock from England. Indeed. And so had a great time there. Uh, lovely coach, great guy, um, recruited me. I was there for two years. And then a friend of mine was playing at Southern Miss. They were looking for a junior transfer and basically they kind of recruited me and I ended up in Hattiesburg which was fantastic great experience um division one golf was dramatically different to NAIA golf and when you're coming from overseas they don't you just coming to play college golf you have no clue that there's a drastic difference between the two so I played at Hattiesburg I was my senior year I played okay but I was always more of a tinkerer even at that stage, um, I grew up in the era of the 90s, so I probably know most of David Ledbetter's books back to front. Mm -hmm. um, I, was al <laughs> I was always, uh, <laughs> I got to get the swing right first, I, I got to do this. It was much more the mindset of sort of block practice and learn how to do this right. And then once you learn how to do it right, now you'll figure out how to go play. It was a complete contrast to where I've evolved to now as a coach, but mm. if I could go back, it would be great. But hindsight's twenty twenty, and I wouldn't be doing what I do now, which I love. Right. If I hadn't gone down that path, so very, sometimes very similar story on this side as well. <laughs> yeah. So go back to development of golf in England, coaching experience. You were exposed to coaching, or you were organically developing just on your own with dad helping, or just by yourself, and then how that then 
contrasted against your experience in the United States? Did you find a coach in the States? So it's a great question. So I would say when I first started as a our professional at the club going back, uh, was a guy called Alex King. He actually finished 11th in the British Open. Like he was a proper pro. Like mm-hmm. he was a guy that played for a living, a Scottish guy. And he was the first guy that kind of taught me, but big beginner lessons type deal. And then it was essentially sort of self-discovery. And then um, because I wasn't, I was playing on these other sports and I wasn't particularly focused. My emphasis wasn't on golf my golf was like just so-so. I could kind of hit the ball a long way, but I would hit it sideways. Mm. And there was never any real aspiration early on. So it was always like, oh, this kid, he's not really interested. So I kind of missed the window, if you liked, for coaching from a club advanced stage type Mm. deal. I might... Honestly, my level of competency wasn't such that it warranted being picked for anything. Right. And then when I was finally done with all the other sports and I was about 15, there was an assistant professional who was a really good player, Dan Wyborn, and he um, basically kind of took me under his wing and goes, oh, this kid's pretty good. He can generate some speed. And he really helped me. Like he was a great coach spent a lot of time so i'm deeply indebted to him like but also the great thing about him is he would try and teach me in the context of this is why we're doing this and then he'd actually have me help him with his game a little bit so it, it was a lot more of a learning and that was the first time that i really had somebody like showing me and mentoring me and that mm-hmm. was huge and that was the first sort of coaching and then when i got to america i expected that sort of environment that nurture to continue and my college coach was awesome the first one great guy wanted to help me and the, the, the funny thing is he was into all these things tony robbins was just that we had to listen to tony robbins tapes on like <laughs> audio cassette this guy was like big into that so this is like the first sort of original tony robbins the stuff and, yeah and he was big into like that type of stuff and there was some of that was really interesting but i had them sort of preconceived idea that I needed technical competency and that uh, to master that to be a good player like I my association with good golf was very much traditional based on good ball strikers equal good golf there was no like if you were uh, very good at scoring that wasn't really playing golf Mm -hmm. it was more the contentment of have you hit it really good yep even if you don't score or you're doing the right thing and so that wasn't the mindset the mindset of college golf was shoot a score I'm going to carry the five guys that shoot the lowest scores. Right. You've got a great golf swing, right. but you don't score with it. Yeah, and so sure. it was one of those things, difficult. So there was no real coaching. I tinkered around with some different people, but there was nobody I could really, A, trust, and B, more than anything, I felt had the technical competency to help me. Everything seemed very sort of vague. There was no like, mm-hmm. but this is, this is what I believe. This is what you should do. Yeah. Then when I got to... Southern Miss, Sam Hall, the coach, great guy, awesome player, set so many records in Mississippi, unbelievable player, horrific golf swing, horrific technique, but unbelievable. She's got more course records in Mississippi. Imagine, yeah, really, really great player. Again, clueless on the technique, and so I finally started to get to the point where I was like, "Well, hold on a minute. There's a trend here. Less technique, more go play golf," and I kind of. I started to get a lot more into like, I'm just going to score. And then there's some players on my team that were really good players that scored really well. One of my dear friend, life friends, VJ Trollio is a great teacher. 
and he was a, a really good player. It was one of those things I was like, okay, well, let me let me try and see what they do. And we played a lot. We had our own golf course in Hattiesburg. It was a field, literally, Van Hook, but we played a lot. And so it kind of got to the point where it's finally like, okay, I'm just by volume and accumulation of playing holes, I am not going to screw up and do the same thing. What am I learning? And so I got into the playing mode and I think that really helped me. But even then I didn't have any, what I would call formal sort of coaching that had any structure. It was all typical team practice where you're going to go do this and you're going to go do that. But no, there was no real, what I would call growing a skill. It Mm -hmm. was very throw, let's throw some paint up on the wall and see what happens. And whoever's playing well this week, we'll take them. Yeah. And so I played it sporadically. Then when I graduated, I was like, okay, well, I'm, I'm starting to play better. I want to play golf for a living. Mm Mm-hmm. And then therein started my journey of of playing. And a lot of the guys that I transitioned to end up coaching were playing mini tours at the same time as me. And so- In the I, States? Or yes, back in, in the States um, on the Hooters tour. And so it got to the point where I would spend most of my time, I'd finally found a coach, Bill McDonald, who's actually the head golf coach at South Carolina. He was teaching accelerized golf in Atlanta. And Bill was a great mentor for a few years and really helped my ball striking. Between him and the golf machine, which has kind of run Ron Green down in Mobile, who's now in uh, Arizona, that was kind of my indoctrination into the skill and the, well, not skill, excuse me, technique in terms of, okay, here's my blueprint, here's what I'm trying to do. And I kind of got into that whole golf machine world. And that was a, a time where mini tours, I'd be on the range, people would be laughing. I was fascinated by the fact that if I could master hitting a two-iron up in the air with a draw, that I was going to play great golf. I mean, mm-hmm. just stupid stuff that had no transfer, no correlation, but at the time, it was very naive. And again, I don't think as a fraternity of coaching, we were at the point where we are now where we understand motor learning and the, yeah. the block versus random practice type deal. But how about coming from a place of... Relative organic development, yes, you had a couple of influences back in England and you had a really good influence playing when you were at Southern Miss, a great player with a funky golf swing. Why is it that you think you were attracted to the, call it sex appeal, of the golf machine to the extent that you even just mentioned before you'd be on a driving range at a mini tour event infatuated with hitting a high draw two iron and yet those around you, their BS meters were were on full alert, Right. And you recognize that, but you still pursued that. That's interesting. Yeah, I, th- I think it was the mindset of I've always, if I've started something, I'm extremely stubborn and hard-headed, which mm. I think makes you as a coach and a problem solver. Like I, I like to try and the critical thinking side of things and problem solving, like here's the pieces, here you are, you should be able to do this. Like to say, no, I can't do it or am very reluctant to ever admit that. And so mm-hmm. in the heat of the moment, not having the fortitude to say, hold on, t- t- time out a minute. This, <laughs> this, breaks, is, <laughs> this is not, you know, you, you got all these props out here and it's not going well. And really how many two iron high draws are you actually going to hit, mm-hmm. let alone hit well out the middle of the club? This is with technology that wasn't necessarily quite as easy as the today's technology. Right. Um yeah, I mean, it was one of those things where it's uh, now looking back on it, I think the learning of that is great that makes me 
makes sure that my players, my juniors at home at our academy, and then players don't go down that hole. And right. so as a coach, I think every opportunity is a learning opportunity. And I look at those as, you know what? I wasn't successful at doing that. I don't want anyone else to make the same mistakes I did, just like your kids. You know that you're making mistakes, you learn from them. But if you can help them not make as big a mistake as you did, right? and, and that's really the way I look at that as, you know what? That's probably why I'm good at what I do now, because sure. it's a it was a mechanism to say, don't do that. For sure. And speaking of being good at what you do right now, just for those that aren't in the know in the golf world, because I think everyone in the golf world knows who you are. You're a golf magazine top 100 teacher. You're a Golf Digest top 50 best teachers in America. Uh, your client list runs from recreational to competitive juniors to some of the world's best that we see playing on Sundays and hoisting trophies. And I know that about you because I, again, travel the world and see you on the driving ranges of the world of the tours, the PGA Tour and the and the web.com and the European, et cetera, et cetera. I'm probably not doing justice to the full bio, so I'm going to let you fill in any gaps. But at the same time, on the back end of filling in those gaps, I want you to tell the listeners something that we don't know about you. Something you don't know about me. Oh, um, Stumped him. No, 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 no. Loved, I, I enjoy entertaining my friends. Love to cook. So, like, um, if any of my players, a lot of times, like, I'll encourage them to come stay at our house. My wife's great about it put them in the basement. Um, I like to cook. So that would be something I find very relaxing. And everyone, people say, well, why do you like cooking? I'm like, well, this is why. I'm in a business of where you never really, you're always working towards making something and you never fully close the circle. As mm -hmm. a golf coach, like golf swings, you like you you start on it or a golf game. Mastery doesn't occur. Doesn't occur. <laughs> I can take all these ingredients. I can kind of somewhat have a recipe, and once I've made it a couple of times, I can put my own take on it, but I can make it from scratch, put all the pieces together, and I can put it down on the table, and it's done, and I've completed it. And this sense of accomplishment and, like, enjoyment, and then other people enjoying eating it and the social side of it and having a couple of glasses of wine with it. Like, so that's something that I really, really enjoy. My mum is a chef by trade. She's amazing. She, I mean, we laugh. She'll come over from England and you'll have like three or four ingredients since you'll make some gourmet meal. It's like, well, how did you do that? So again, it's one of those things. I really enjoy that, the putting the pieces together, building something and then and making it. So I think something would be that I really enjoy cooking. You may have just answered the next question. <laughs> what would you do if you were not a golf coach and you couldn't go back and change some of those cogs or those cards that you played early in your golf career and you weren't a professional player? Would, would you be a chef? Well... I like being a chef, but it's relaxing. But yeah. like the thing that uh, I, I really like, again, from like one of my favorite TV shows is House. Mm -hmm. Like I would be very interested to be like a, a physician, a surgeon, like the problem solving of here's a patient, which is a bit like what we do. And I love the medical model. That's a lot of my sort of study is in, in the other sciences is, okay, to here's the problem okay, what is the issue? What are we trying to do? How are we trying to help this person? So I actually think medicine, maybe physical therapy, some of the the more biological, the science type stuff, the body, human performance, anything on that, or maybe maybe psychology. It's like something in, in that realm, if I could do it all again, but you can't. So I, I kind of love what I do now. Forge forward. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm a coach, I'm a coach, I'm a coach. I'm a coach. And so speaking of that, um, the audience is diverse, but there are golfers out there that, that, that clearly need advice from us. We're going to give them advice. 
but there are also coaches out there that need advice. And in your experience, what characteristics do you feel distinguish the best coaches in golf? And then maybe at a more broad level, an umbrella or 10,000 foot view, the best coaches in sport generally, the best life coaches? That's a great question. So I love studying other coaches and I look at the greats from different sports. And I think the number one thing that great coaches do is their ability to empathize with the athlete and then communicate with them. So communication and empathy to the point where you know how to push people's buttons. And that's what I call it. Like I, I feel like with my friends, my wife, my, I'm really good at pushing buttons. And I think you need to know how to do that. Now, I think to some point, someone like Alex Ferguson, if you ever read his book, A Man United Coach, fascinating study. And he has a chapter on each different player that he coached. And then he kind of, he looks at the interaction with them. And I think obviously he had a lot of success for a long period of time and he developed a lot of those players. And then he brought egos and names in and he, he went through that and I look at great coaches and guys I work with and people I admire on the PJ tour I may not necessarily agree with a lot of philosophies but I always try and look at the positive in other coaches and what do they do better than me or what do they do things that make them successful and I look at that and I think a lot of those coaches are really good at, at being able to communicate empathize and connect with the athlete that's in front of them. And I think that's hugely important because that creates trust and that mm. can creates that bond to where now all of a sudden when you, when you say something to them, you know, you're not, they know that you're not just saying it to say it. And so studying great coaches across different sports that have had success with multiple athletes for an extended period, I think is a huge thing that as coaches, we should all do because you can always glean from, okay, well, that's what that, soccer coach or that cricket coach or that rugby coach and I think that there's loads of different ways to do it but it's like how do you motivate people and human like development is is just massive and that's where that's what I think is a what I look at the best that's what I see and it's interesting when you talk to them there's a lot of people that are really good at um I call it fluff Let's just call it fluff mm -hmm. But when you when you talk to tires. yeah you talk to the true true greats and they say what I liked about the way I was coached or this coach is that they're always honest with me and I know that they're not bullshitting me mm -hmm. they're not right like they're going to tell me and hold me accountable and tell me how it is and I would say that, I would say you know me well enough at times some people might call that abrupt or might call that insensitive but you, I try and be very sensitive you try and know the person as best you can you can tiptoe around it but all at a point is the way that my business runs is my players performance is derived from what I say or don't say which is equally as important but at some point I have to I have to say something or I have to believe say what I believe and I'm willing to put it out there. And right. I think that that's a, a really important thing. And as long as you've done all the groundwork in communicating, empathizing, really studying the person you're with, when you do deliver that, which is necessary, then it comes with a lot of credibility and a lot of times it's heard. Whereas if you just pump the tires and it's just, oh, that's so great, you're doing that, awesome. It's, as an English person, inherently, that's just so opposite of our culture that it's sometimes needed but it just it has no credibility and that's that's what i look at when i see the best across all sports is when it really comes time to say something it's credible and it's relatively direct and it this is what it is so let's take a quick break in the action to recognize one of our partners under armor 
It's Under Armour's mission to make all athletes better through passion, design, and the relentless pursuit of innovation. And that ethos or mission statement couldn't be more aligned with the Earn Your Edge podcast. We're thankful to be powered by Under Armour. You're speaking to the value of EQ there, the emotional intelligence, the ability to read verbals, nonverbals, the character that's standing in front of you, male, female, young or old, be able to tailor a message that motivates them towards the end of improvement, whether that's through the manner of speech or the manner of intervention. At the end of the day, it's about delivering that message directly and appropriate for them. And I think you also touched there on There's very little room, if any, for cuddling and placating. Uh, Quite frankly, I believe those things are a waste of time. The message should be clear. It should be direct, particularly at the level of the game that you spend your life coaching on, which is the high performance level, largely high performance junior, high performance collegiate, amateur, and professional, where there's really no room for tiptoeing around. There's no room for, okay, it'll, it'll take in a week. No, it needs to take now. It needs to be ready to go when we head to the golf course And if it's not, if it doesn't yield results, then we need to know the next course of action. So, And my experience around great organizations and great individual coaches is the same. It's it's never all best buddy. It's never all one way. The coach is somewhat of a chameleon who can put uh, different faces and different um, personalities on for any given situation. I couldn't agree um, more. So how does one go about developing that knowledge as a coach? Like if you were giving advice here, if I was two years into into coaching, and you said that to me, I would say, well, that's all well and good, but I am who I am, and how do I develop that as a skill? The ability to read people and, and therefore yeah, tailor no, a message th- appropriately. So I think that's fantastic. So if you keep doing the same thing, you're going to get the same results, right? And so I always try and go outside of my comfort zone and outside of my realm. So as a golf fraternity... Largely, if you look at how golf has always been, it's been if you wanted to be successful early on, you had to have a mentor and you had to be under that mentor. And basically it was, okay. well, if I worked for this person, I was going to end up being successful and that's how it was going to be. Well, I never had that environment. It was I needed to go see as many people as possible and go study as many different pieces of information. And then how could I package that together to be successful and to kind of create my own identity as a coach. And so I tell everybody, go to psychology, go, go look in that world. You can look at some philosophy, you can go look in medicine, you can go to any other, like a lot of personal development, a lot of like books that information that's out there. The the internet is a great thing. You can sit there with a glass of wine and you can just start typing things in and look at what is out there. And people are so willing to share information now, or they've put information out there that you can assimilate different pieces that are going to be really useful tools for you. And I tell everybody, look, you're trying to build a toolkit, a treasure trove of information that you can essentially take out at any piece, any time. You need the right information at the right time. That's what makes a great coach. You need to be able to deliver the right information at the right time succinctly, not a bunch of words, but like simple, like every great player I've ever been around, they don't want it all explained in some big, they want it really simple. So you have to take the complex make it really simple, deliver it. And these different areas of expertise in lots of different fields, 
If you go to look at experts, I always say simplicity is on the other side of complexity. You look at like people undertake things that are complicated and they simplify them down. You have access to that now through the internet. So go find it, go look. Don't just stay. If you're a young coach in any whatever sport you're in, go to other sports, look at great coaches and look what they did. And most of the time, I see the trend of they're great communicators, they're willing to learn, they go outside the box, they try different things and realize that you're not always going to be successful with the same people. If I look at coaches, I'm a huge football fan, but if I look at Pete Carroll and I look at Bill Belichick, they are two very different coaching styles, but they have success. They're going to have success with certain players, just the same with the players that we all work with on the tour. And so I think a lot of times it's understanding what are you good at, embrace that, try and work on your other areas, but know that hey, I, these are the things that I'm good at and build around that and the things that, hey, I, I look at what that coach does in another sport or another expert, I could implement that and I could be really good at that. There's certain things I know that I try not to go down the realm of because kind of go against my belief system. Not that they're wrong, but I, I wouldn't be able to deliver on them. And I, that's by what example, I always... By example, one, two. Um, so I think that in terms of if I got really into a lot of numbers diagnostically over the top into things like 3D, I do it. I have all the systems. But if I like tried to communicate purely in in that norm and the, that range of, okay, we're going to get this, this is going to be here, we're going to has to be this amount of degrees, you have to be here. I think that that would be, I'd be so focused on something that opens up a can of worms and my background in, in the body and exercise science, kind of my degree. I'm mm -hmm. like, I don't think that that makes enough of a difference in the variability of the game that we play I just need to kind of know it, but I don't need to that I don't need to do what Phil Cheatham does or what Rob Neal does or what Greg Rose does. They're friends of mine and I I can use them and utilize them, but I'm not going to waste the time and energy on that. I'm much better off spending my time focusing on strategy and ways to play the game and what would you do and how would you hit this shot? That's something that I can utilize sure. and I'm good at. So I'm not going to I'm not going to waste my energy on that. Yeah. Not to say that some people shouldn't and some people are really good at that, but that's such a far cry from the humanistic side of coaching and helping people perform. I need to know about that, but that's I don't need to be down that rabbit hole and mastering it and just that's all I'm consumed by because I just don't think that would be worthwhile my time right. in terms of the output on the back end to help my players hit the right shot at the right time and execute. Yeah. And so that brings up that conversation of knowledge width or knowledge depth. You need to go just deep enough to know how much of that information is beneficial for your role within this coaching landscape. But yet at the same time, you also need to know when to tap the brakes and turn around and go turn, turn over more stones or run down further rabbit holes. So a follow-up question I have for you then, for a coach that wants to coach players and coach players through junior golf and through college and onto the tours to coach at your level, what do you feel like are the things that you tap into with much more regularity? So we'll call those the highest, highest mileage areas that you use on a daily basis that those types of coaches in pursuit of that goal should be educating themselves most from. Okay. It's a great question. So I always, I have a, 
everyone kind of has a, a framework or a blueprint of how they, a context the way you look at players. So my first question to every player is, well, what shot do you want to hit? Once I understand what the outcome is they want to have, then I'm going to work on, okay, what do you need to do in order to get that given outcome in a very standardized at the target, like no pressure, no nothing. Mm -hmm. Once we've kind of got that, then it's okay. Well, how do you need to move in order to, to do that? So the first thing is the thing I use all the time. I screen everybody. So most people know I teach a lot of classes for TPI. People say, well, why do you teach someone else's information? Well, I'm not teaching information. I'm just teaching a screen, which I think is a wonderful tool for golfers. Mm -hmm. Assessing a, an athlete's movement habit predisposition is extremely important. After that, it's your interpretation of what you want to do with that information. And so I'm passionate about that. So that's one thing. Movement screening, understanding human movement, I think is a, if you're a coach, that's vitally important in terms of width and depth. I think you need to know enough to be able to say, okay, well, that's not quite great. You don't have a great range of motion. That could affect. But you don't need to be able to diagnose what the reason is. That's, again, you defer to an expert. Okay, so that would be number one. Then I think once you know how they move, you need to have a underst simple understanding of, of the fundamentals of ball position, posture, alignment, grip, the things that aren't sexy but make a – I know you and I have had a conversation about this. I call them the least invasive things. We kind of had a discussion. You don't necessarily agree with that all the time, but I would say simple things to make a change, right? Okay, so you need to understand that simple stuff. So then ball flight, you need to understand club path, what is the club path, swing direction, angle of attack, vertical swing plane, the things that make it up and then how to read that and the effects on the ball, right? Spin loft, dynamic loft, blah, blah, blah. You need to know that. I use that all the time. Then I think you need to know about kind of what, based on that, then what, is the, what does the swing need to look like? How does the pivot need to move? So again, now you need the, the ability to look at different styles of swing I'm very agnostic to style. All the players I've had over the years who've been very successful on tour, guys that have got to top 10 in the world, been on Ryder Cups, President's Cups, won money titles, they've all swung differently, but it's been based on how they move and the shots that they want to hit. And I think that's a credit to your information in that you're not a one-trick pony, so to speak. So, so as a coach, you need to know a lot of swing styles. And so whilst the golf machine gets a lot of criticism the greatest thing about the golf machine is that you've got the components and the variations within the components that they're compatible or not compatible and you know you see a lot of people now talking about matchups well if you've been teaching on tour a long time you're really good at teaching matchups and if your players all swing differently then you understand matchups you're so a master of matchups at that the, point <laughs> the, the proof is in the pudding so right. if you go back to 2004 when i started and you look at the success the players i've have had, I'm really damn good at matchups, right? Not toot my own horn, but that's that's my wheelhouse. So I understand that. So that's what I think you need to be able to do as a as a coach. If you're trying to get good, you do need to be a pretty good expert on a variety of swing variations and pattern components. For those out there that you're talking over right now, which would be the recreational players or those that aren't coaches, maybe even some players that don't understand what matchups really mean, could you give us a tangible example of a maybe a case study and you can change the name if you want 
player X needs these types of matchups for this reason to affect their ball control to have this success. Yeah, totally. So I think it's all about, depending on how somebody holds the club and what their club face does, what their body is then going to do. So you, you want to have harmony and mm-hmm. synchronization between the club and the body. If those things don't aren't compatible and they don't match, well, now you've got a problem. So let's let's use an example. Let's say you have a player that has lots of lateral motion in their golf swing. So they, they have a lot of slide. Let's say they move towards the target. That is going to influence their swing and the direction of their swing going out to the right. So if there's somebody that struggles to close the club face up, they're going to have a lot of shots to the right. So you need a mechanism to offset that slide so that they have a matchup to now they can deliver the club face square. So there's a current trend of everybody should rotate when they play golf. Well, not everybody has the physical ability to rotate. So you need to have a mechanism. If you're a big slider, you need to have something, a grip type, a delivery of the club that matches that up so they can continue to slide because you can tell them don't slide but if that's their power source they have a lot of linear force when they swing the golf club you need something to make sure that they don't play out of the right trees and out of bounds right the whole time they play if they're a right-handed golfer that would be a matchup so again if somebody rotates a lot well you better make sure that they have something where their club face doesn't get excessively closed because their body's closing as it rotates. Now you need a, the opposite matchup. So that's very generic, but those would be matchups and this the complexity of that is depending on the player. And the true genius is to really get it to be so simple that it's like, okay, well you do this, we need this to be the mechanism for you and those are what I call the foundational pieces of this is what you need to do. This is the core of your golf game. You have to embrace that. Don't fight it. Don't try and change. Instead, say, you know what? I like what I do. Here are the pieces that go with it. And this is what I need to do to have the shots be consistent. And the great thing about a lot of our diagnostic stuff now is if they can repeat it about 80% of the time in my mind, you can go play golf with it. Sure. Yeah. What it looks like is this, the style is not important. Right. It's more of the functionality and the compatibility. And the, and the big one here that I don't think it's enough is that what happens when the lights and the music get turned up really loud? How does it hold up? Because right. it doesn't matter. It can be perfect, but if it's against your inherent DNA and have how you move, when shit goes sideways, it's literally going to go sideways. It's going to be really challenging. And so you've done all this work, but it's like it's totally against your inherent movement pattern. So there we go back to the first part of a tool of understanding movement. It's, it's huge. So lots of people now in our world talk in great terms of anatomically, and they, they use all these big words. But at the end of the day, that's great, and they're getting people to do great things, and we're changing the, the, the information that's out there. But if someone can't physically do what you want them to do, and you're trying to get them to do something that physically won't happen, the outcome, I'm afraid, is going to be futile. Yeah, so it takes you back succinctly to the point you made just then in understanding through assessment to know capabilities. What are the roadblocks that we're going to encounter as we ask a person to perform a certain movement to identify whether you want to call it matchups, whether you want to call it a fingerprint or a swing blueprint or a person's individual swing DNA without a point of assessment to establish that starting point and understanding of strengths, weaknesses, limitations, etc., then you're really trying to push rope uphill, which is not a task that anyone should ever have to do. Right? No, not at all. <laughs> right. So, 
quick questions. Don't require quick answers. Um, I'm willing to continue to suck your time and knowledge yeah. for, the, for the benefit of everyone out there listening and, and quite frankly, for myself, selfishly. Actions or activities that you do that you feel are undervalued in the world of coaching and the world of player development, like maybe some things that players don't appreciate that are foundational for you, maybe some things that coaches also poo-poo in our world that you're like, no, no, this helps me do what I do to just to a much better extent, but others think is maybe crazy. I think that making notes, journaling about players is is really important. So understanding each individual, what their tendencies are, observing. Observation is a, a really important thing. Like I always use the analogy, you got one mouth and two ears. And so the more that you can observe and watch, and a lot of times players sometimes interpret that, well, you're not going to say anything. You're just standing behind me. You're not going to say anything. Well, I always say, well, if I'm not saying anything, there's one or two things are happening. I'm thinking, or you're doing something right. So no news is good news. And so one of the things that I think is is important is to always take notes. So I use apps like Coach Now um, and all my players. I, if anything, I over communicate. So one of the biggest knocks is always that I hear in our world was, well, I didn't hear from him or. I didn't understand that. So I always make the effort as try and say the same thing as many ways as possible. I'm in the realm of, I know my, my business. If I'm not communicating with my players, somebody else's. So I make a real effort to try and nudge them and communicate with them and give them information. That's all, I'm always trying to, trying to push them towards what they want to do. And if anything, I would much rather try and basically criticize for being over delivering than not doing anything. And, and I look at high performance as I want to, I want more information for me to try and help my people. I'm not trying to overwhelm them, but I'm trying to, to keep giving them things to drive them and to push them. So they know that I'm working just as hard as they are. And I'm trying to stay ahead of them to continue their growth. And whether it's our kids at home at Greystone or whether it's any of my college kids, developmental players, I'm always trying to show them that I'm working for them just as hard, if not harder than they're working for themselves. And I think that when you have that drive and you have that determination, like I'm always trying to problem solve. Like when I finish with a player, Brett McCabe, one of my closest friends, and he's a great exercise. He's always like, get a massive piece of paper and start writing down two columns, what you did well, what you would do differently. And so you assimilate all this information. Uh, you kind of have, I have an exit folder, like players, you've, what did I do wrong? So I always look at, that's a learning opportunity for me. It's like, because if I get another player in a similar situation, what would I do with that? So I'm big on the note taking, mm -hmm. the introspective, critical assessment of myself. Right. Self-reflection. Yeah. How do I get better? But then also for my players, how do I make sure they understand that I'm in their corner? I'm working really hard for them and I, I want them to get better. I want them to, to succeed and be successful. And I don't know that everybody has that mindset but that's the the way i've always looked at it is i'm going to over deliver for the player so the player knows hey look i got the best person in my corner possible and i always try and frame everything was with the context look i don't 100 percent have all the information nobody does but i can assure you that based on what we are doing now and the context of what you want to do this is the roadmap. And I think for us as coaches, a lot of times when we get other players 
and players come to us when they're struggling and they've left one instructor and they've gone to another, you and I live in the world where it's highly competitive, it's very easy for other instructors to say, well, why would Mark tell you that? Or why would you do that? But the reality is nobody understands the frame or the context where the information was given. And unfortunately, as you well know, players don't interpret the information as well as we want them to or as we intend. Mm -hmm. Hence my preface with communicating as much as possible to keep the information to where I'm making sure they've assimilated it properly and they understand how to apply it relative to them. Because when I overhear players talking with other players about what they're trying to do, quite frankly, it's comical at times. Now, as, sure. long, as, as long as their interpretation works for them, it may be slightly off of what I've conveyed, but as long as the overall meaning is there, it's okay. But the tough part is you're trying to communicate so they have a framework, a reference to where they can now go apply, they can work, and they're working in the right way. So I would, I would say that that's something I try and be very diligent about. Like I'm anal about writing stuff on a card too. I, I give them cards and stuff. And I try, I write it out and I'll throw one away if I don't think it's neat enough. Like silly stuff. Julieta Granada, a girl I've helped, she sends me back a text, nice handwriting, like stuff <laughs> like that. But it's the trying to be meticulous about the, the diligence to the information so that you can basically say, here it is. Here's why we're doing it. This is the context. Because players will challenge. The challenge I embrace, I'm like, okay, that means that they're trying to process it. But I need to, again, have a very thorough here's why, and I try and give it a very linear learning approach so that it's, okay, I understand because of this, because of this, because of this, and here, here are the pieces. And, and I try and make a really diligent effort to do that. I'm fairly confident you probably are probably similar, but I don't know that all of my uh, peers are like that. So that, that would be something I think that is critically important if you're trying to drive high performance Beautiful. because people have a, a framework to go back to. Many knowledge nuggets to pull out of that, but in the interest long -winded of long-winded answer, yeah, I guess. exactly. <laughs> quick hit, quick hits turn into long-winded answers, but that's great because you touched on some subjects there that are near and dear to my heart. One of those is what I'll call order of operations, and there are things that you do inside a coaching session, and then there's the hidden curriculum or the hidden work that goes on behind the scenes when you're in that self-reflective process of did I do everything in my power in that session to serve the purpose of result for that person in front of me. And it's the strategies of communication to say a multitude of things to achieve one end. And that end is the result when the rubber hits the road. So much to pull out there, but moving forward, what's something you feel like is difficult to teach and why? That's a great question. So I think that anything that happens dynamically and from hip high in the downswing to about hip high in the follow through is happening so quickly that to change that effectively, especially with a high, high performance player or an elite player you're inheriting, a bit different if you develop the player. So let's take that as two different things. But let's say it's a player that's coming to you. Impact's happening so quickly that anything that you're trying to do during the impact interval I always find is very challenging. The better hand-eye coordination someone has, yes, you can expedite that learning. But I think inherently players do what they do with the club and they have a mechanism to line it up. I find that changing that is very difficult. And in a 3D world that that would, a lot of things, this is what people do. You look at AMM risk graphs, you look at release, they kind of 
things change, but it's hard to make things change. And so it's much easier to change things that happen pre prior, as in how can I influence the setup of the backswing? So I would always say that things that impact for a bad player or changing the club face is really easy because generally speaking, the thing's so open and the wrist is so cupped, the club comes down that it's like, okay, well, we, we're going 180 degree difference and there's somewhere going to hit the sweet spot in the middle of that mm -hmm. and the face is going to be closed and you're going to look, <laughs> look like a genius. But that's the complexity of the player's is skill is such that that's really easy. But I think it's really hard when you start to get down into this sort of delivery area if it's something that you can't change prior to actually get into this down through the hit, it, it, I think those things are, I find those things challenging and I'm always looking for ways to make that better. So that's why I kind of have the mindset and the belief, what I can do to influence that ahead of time, I'm always going to do it, especially for me as a player. I hated anything that I had to do manually with my hands when I was playing golf. Approaching I, impact or through impact, yeah. Yeah, I did much better with picturing a shot yep. and just going and playing golf. And if I could focus on what my body was doing or how I set up to influence that, that I was fine. But this was all happening so quickly. And generally speaking, I was trying to hit it so hard anyway. It was it was challenging. And I see that as a trend with as players get better. And that, that to me is the thing I would say is, is the most difficult and also people are very apprehensive, especially a lot of players. When you start getting into this and telling them that you need them to manipulate this or do this, I just find that they get very weary of you. And so that would be my, that's, that's, that's what I personally find difficult because I'm also trying to do my due diligence of do no harm. Right. Hippocratic oath, right. Mm. That's their mechanism of, especially with the, a, a tour player. That's kind of their living. And yeah, so it's sure. very easy to say, well, your club face is really open at the top and you don't flex the lead wrist and that's why you leave it to the right. So we need to fix all that. Well, if they've done that for 20 years, sorry, you, they're not drastically. As soon as they go the other way, well, now they're going to deal with something the that they've, yeah. they've never dealt with. And so their whole lens, the, how they see a golf course, where they peg the ball up on the tee marker, their whole strategy and mechanism of playing golf mm -hmm. – which is, is void. It won't work. It's not a matchup that works with right. how now how they're trying to deliver the club. So whilst it may seem correct at the time, the reality is that they can't apply it and they can't use it because it's against their whole basically how they've done it their whole life. And yeah. so that's why sometimes the right information is not going to work. It's more a question of how do I manage what they're doing. And so kind of work around, so to speak. Yes. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think so many mistakes are made when you try and address a challenge, that challenge in ball control in the range of the swing where the clubs are moving the fastest, which is what you're describing from hip high to hip high largely, whereas addressing um, a solution in a preparatory phase, whether that's static or when the club's moving slow, which is the backswing, that preparatory phase is so much more effective. I find the same challenge and particularly you've got science confirming that that's a difficult stage to make change, right? Impact taking four ten thousandths of a second, human reaction time at four hundredths of a second. Well, good luck. The deck is firmly stacked in the house's favor. <laughs> um, one more before we get into a side of athlete development. I'm so keen on getting your insight on. But from a coaching standpoint, how has a failure or apparent failure set you up for later success in your coaching career? Yeah, well, I think that... Um I don't think there's any such thing as failure. First off, it's like, I'm not scared to be wrong. I'm going to give you my best 
guesstimate. When I say guesstimate, I use that loosely. I'm basically betting the house and I'm paid largely on high performance from the elite player based on my information. I make no money if they don't make any money. So I'm essentially saying, here's what you should do for your livelihood and my livelihood. If it doesn't work, that's not failure. Okay, what did? why did it not work? What are the pieces that may not have gone correctly to make that work? So, okay, well, we're not going to do that again. So that wasn't a failure. That was one step closer because we've eliminated a variable. And that's the way I've always looked at it. And being as things to me personally have never come hard. Sorry, never come easy. Complete yep. opposite of that. <laughs> things to me have never come easily. I'm used to like getting my head kicked in. Okay, go back and do it again. Like I'm the most stubborn, hard-headed, determined you the British Bulldog, aren't you? So you I don't know about that. But I am. <laughs> if there's 10 dogs in the fight for one piece of meat, you're going to get it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm very determined to try and always find a resolution. It just sometimes at the first effort doesn't always yield the resolution that you want or the results. And so I look at it. I always look at the critical. I try to use and apply a critical thinking model. Okay, well, why didn't that work? And so it, it's like. I am, I relish the opportunity. Sometimes it's almost like, well, that was too easy. If it if it worked the first time, I almost question myself, and I'm like, okay, am I sure that's right? That was that was too easy because a lot of times things that that are really, you know, that you are trying to work on, rarely does it go as smoothly as possible. And I, I think you'd agree with that. So failure is, it's not, it's it's not. They're a, learning opportunities, aren't they? Absolutely. They're just a- They were coaching or playing or- 100%. And whatever you do as a player or as a coach, the one thing I would say is I still try and play golf. I tinker with everything I do when I go and try and play with the players that I coach. I want to try and beat them. Odds are it's never going to happen. It does occasionally. It's quite comical and they get quite angry. But my efforts are always self-discovery. And so I'm always using pieces and I try and take something theoretically. How does it work? Okay, and so failure is is just, I don't really think anything's a failure. It's like, I'm going to try again. If it isn't successful, it's just, it's something that people associate with not doing things right the first time. And quite frankly, it's, I think it's, to me, it's a motivator. If it didn't work, well, why am I going to do it? That way I'm going to look at it as a, as a catalyst to do something different. Athlete development, separating skills. When you look at players that grow through the junior ranks and develop the ability to shoot lower scores and then on into college, and maybe they're moving from freshman to NCAA All-American and then up into the professional ranks, what are the things that separate good from great and great then into world-class as they grow or climb this competitive ladder? Yeah, so I think the first thing that always strikes me is their golf IQ in terms of their ability to, in the the moment, okay, what's the easiest shot for me to hit? What's Or what's the right shot for me to hit and the easiest variation of that shot to give me the best possible outcome so my success rate is the highest? And I see that the really astute, like gifted player golf IQ, which some stuff you just can't teach – they have it. It's almost like a. it's this ability to kind of look through everything and be like, okay, there's a decision. And then when they make it, they're very committed and they have a belief system in their self that I'm going to do it. Like extremely confident towards arrogant and cocky, which 
I actually think is vital to being great. They want the ball. They can they you, want. Can you, know, you repeat that? Because I agree with you one thousand percent. That arrogance and that cockiness that their way is the right way until they can be given a compelling reason that's valid and they can be proved otherwise, so to speak. Yeah, I, I think that you cannot. If you study other athletes and you look at the greats, they're all extremely confident. They're all they want to be the man or the woman who who's got the ball last second to shoot the shot. They relish it, they enjoy it, and they're arrogant and they're cocky about it. Now, whilst in a traditional society, we don't necessarily like that individual. Like, let's, let's throw that out there. And it's mm-hmm. like we b- belittle that a little bit and go, Courage, isn't it? Yeah. We like, I think a lot of times that's just a, a lot of people resent or inherently jealous of the individual that has the ability to do that and then is flagrantly saying, I'm going to do that. But if I am coaching an athlete, that's the athlete I want because I know that when I give them the opportunity to do it, they're going to execute. Now, the people who shy away from it, who aren't, there are some people who have kind of introverted who are quietly cocky, but they, they want that. But when you start to challenge them and you push their buttons a little bit, it comes out that they want to do it and they, they are, I'm going to do it. I'm going to show you. Yeah, that's easy. I want that. Give it to me. That is very important. And I think that the greats that I see, whether they're juniors whether they're college kids or whether they're sort of developmental player, tour players, or they're the elite players, that's how they are. They they are really, really good. I mean, that's that's their mindset. Have and you think, found an ability to shape that in a positive direction, to cultivate more of that bravado, bravery, cockiness? I think gamification is massive. Oh, hold on. I know what that is, but I'm not too sure the listeners do. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, creating games for people to where there's a consequence for them not performing, but when they do perform and they have a positive outcome that it yield, builds confidence for them and they, they start to create this ego and this bravado that I'm really good. And so you have to start that early, but you have to continually like build it and push it and you, you can't make it too easy and you can't make it too hard but as the skill level increases you can increase the intensity level of the game and so the more you can expose those players to higher level players and get them in in that environment and then start to challenge them and then really sort of needle them a little bit they tend to in their own way create their own reaction to that and then that develops their sort of persona in in terms of developing that skill to be hey now I'm starting to believe in myself and be confident. But I think it's one of those things, depending on how the athlete is, you have to be very careful. You've got to nurture that because some people you can push them too far and you kill them. And then some people you, you've got to push them a little bit more. Some people respond well to the hug. Some people respond well to the kick in the butt. I mean, and you, you've got to figure it out and they're a little differently. But gamification, gaming things for them, creating skills. If people – so Dave Allred – his book's great, um, The Pressure Principle. A lot of the training... Put it Mon- into context here. Dave Allred uh, Mon- came on board Molinari. with Francesco Molinari and... Luke Fran- Donald. There you go. Francesco so- attributed a lot of the work he did with Dave Allred for the um, great play uh, this year and, quite frankly, last year as well, but most recently the triumph at the Open Championship. And so that is all about you're trying to build confidence and you're trying to create a fact in practice to where you've seen yourself accomplish it well if i've done it before i can do it again and so everything i'm trying to do is get them in the threshold to where practice is harder than plays and when they go play golf it's like oh this is fun man this is this is good and if you look at other sports the 
practice is always a little bit harder than the game. So they've prepared. And so I'm always trying to create that where they leave a session of their a skill development, like trying to make them understand you're trying to achieve this goal. If you do this, it's great. Now they take that confidence and they start to think I can do that. And now they start to verbalize that confidence. And, and I encourage it. I'm like, man, that was really good what you did in, in that drill yesterday. I mean, that's so cool. That's awesome. Do you know that on the PGA Tour, if you do that, you're beating the leading player of that week in that category? Oh, I am? Big yeah. moment of mastery, isn't it? Yeah. So, so it's one of those things where that's where I'm trying to create that person that is almost like the fighter pilot mentality or the Navy SEAL or the special operator that, that has that self-belief and that the ability to to dig deep when it matters and that they're resilient and then they're also they internally can handle any situation and they're prepared for it i use the analogy with the golf club your golf clubs are like a swiss army knife you've got 14 clubs in there and you basically need to be able to do as many things with those 14 clubs as possible so golf is never the same shot twice if it is you've hit a shitty shot you're basically reteeing so you need that variability to hit a variety of shots anytime I'm trying to build you for that and your belief system that, man, I'm going to pull this forearm out and if I need to hit a low cut, I'm going to do it or I'm going to pull out this pitching wedge and I'm going to hit this nice flighted launching 30 degree shot that's going to spin. And it, they want, I want them to believe that they're going to do it before they do it. And so that's my context of the creating the arrogance, the belief, the bravado that they're going to do that. And when they, it's time to do it, they do it and they enjoy gloating in it and rubbing it in your face. Right, right. You mentioned a lot there that pertain to confidence, but also a bunch of uh, dialogue there on the resilience and the grit and the determination. How about purpose? Purpose as a separating, we'll call it high caliber characteristic that moving from good to great and great to world-class is an absolute, absolutely mandatory character trait. Would you agree, disagree? Could you... Yeah, you that. mean their by their purpose is in their intent, their, their willingness, purpose, yeah, their yeah, willingness yeah. to do the difficult things. Yes, they're. Um, I think the <laughs> whether that's bleeding, right? Hands bleeding because they've hit so many shots, or yeah, the the ones that want equity. it the best, the their tenacity and their hunger to be the best. They don't the one they don't question. They want more. Okay, I've done this. What do I do need to do next? next? Yeah. Okay, I've done that. I can do this. I can accomplish this. Well, what do I do now? And so. I love that thirst and that hunger and I think that it gets to the point where the great thing about golf is golf is about shooting a number. So it's age, it doesn't discriminate against age. So if you're 16 and you can shoot in the low 60s every single time you play golf, then you're ready for the next level. You're ready to keep keep doing it. And I think the one thing is the the willingness and the the hunger. If someone wants to keep learning and they want to keep getting better, you need to keep feeding that hunger so that they continue to to want to work and they want to get better. And the, the great thing is until people are shooting – Brad Seneca shot 59 today. Until mm. people are shooting the 50s all the time, we're clearly not doing a very good job coaching or we could certainly do it better. So I do think that over time we're going to see a trend of lower and lower and lower scoring. If you just look at the scores that people shoot now, it's, okay, we're, we're getting better as coaches. We've got to cultivate that and how do we do it We've got to continually give them the, the tools, and it's not just technique. That That's the biggest difference I see now versus 10, 15 years ago is now we have such a better understanding of the world of motor learning and like skill development of how do we actually develop the tools that they're going to need to actually play the game as opposed to actually just hit a shot, mm -hmm. and, that, and that's massively important. Yeah.
And so unpack that physical skill as differentiators as a player moves from shooting in the mid-70s, maybe as a junior player playing AJGAs into being AJG Invitational caliber onto college and then onto the professional level. In terms of those being separating skills, what do you see as differentiated? Is it strictly in your perspective? And clearly I know this, but I'm more opening up for conversation for the listener's purpose. Do you see it to be so heavily biased towards being a distance-based game that therefore requires some a lot of front-end loading on capacities that would then evolve into power for junior players? Or is it more, as you spoke to just before, this duality of, yes, power is necessary, but at the same time, you can't forget that there's a, an explicit set of instructions that the ball's looking for at point of contact and deviating even to the slightest degree from the precision required means that your ball goes dramatically offline. So therefore, that there's inherent micro skill that's necessary to develop as well. Yeah. So first off, there is a huge distance bias in the game of golf now. So if you want to, so last week at um, St. Louis in the in the PGA, Brooks Kepka wins, obviously. But if you if you just look objectively at the facts at that golf course, so. The fairways were pretty long. I think that they did that inherently because if the fairways had been fast and the greens were as soft as they were, you would have seen in the 20 under scoring no problem, mm-hmm. in my opinion. So I think that was fairly smart on Kerry Hay. To, that's how he set the golf course up. But there's a massive bias on distance. There's a high, way higher correlation driving distance than probably anything else as it relates to earnings. You can just kind of look at that mm-hmm. as, a, as a rule of thumb. So yes, you do have to hit it a long way, but... You also have to play the game, and distance is only any good if it's relatively straight. On the map. And it's on the map. So, <laughs> so again, now now it gets to the point of, yes, there's a huge distance bias, and I've worked with players that smash it, and I've worked with players that hit it really straight. Golf is about horses for courses. They play 30-something events a year. I can tell you who's going to play well at certain events and who's going to play well at other events. When they get to be big boy golf courses – there's a massive distance bias. If you don't have a massive distance bias, you better be an incredible iron player and a phenomenal wedge player. And that week, you better be like way up in strokes gained punting. And you can compete. Last year at Aaron Hills, Ches Reeves, not a huge hitter. His iron game was on and he putted great, had a great finish, shot a lot of low scores. Brooks Kepka, totally different game, smashes it. Doesn't have to possibly be as sharp with some of the clubs that Ches would have been. Brooks obviously wins. But again, there's different ways to play different golf courses. The guys that are going to play well at Tampa aren't the same guys that are going to play well at Bay Hill. So you've got to look at it as, yes, if I'm trying to develop a junior, I want to try and develop speed. I want them to be rotary ballistic rockets as much as possible. Swing as hard as possible. I'm pretty confident I can get you to hit it straight if it's going a certain distance at mm-hmm. a given point in time. But the real art to playing golf is can you hit it the right distance with the right trajectory and the right curvature? That That's true mastery and ball control that can make up for a lot of other areas. And then how's your magic wand? At the end of the day, if you're a great putter, you can do other things very 
mediocrity wise to me and still make a lot of money and play really well and compete and the quality and the condition of greens now and agronomy to where it's gotten to if you roll your rock really well you're going to have very consistent surfaces at the elite level you can compete really really well and you the guys are trying to make every part they're not they're not just like oh, i'm going to get it close it's like they're 40 feet and they're like they don't care if they hit it four or five feet by they know the capture size of the hole is smaller when they do that but they're confident they can make the next one coming back so now it goes to what's what's the sort of core of your game and where does it fall what is the what is your superpower if you like what are the things that you do well and to me you've got to have something that you excel at some guys smash it they kind of tinker around with some of the other pieces some guys are amazing iron players tiger woods if you look at the iron game he had last week it was phenomenal mm-hmm. Darts. <laughs> Unbelievable. And that's right. Tiger Woods at his heyday. Tiger drives it a little bit straighter last week. It might be a completely different story. But what makes him good with his irons is what makes him not so good with his driver, right? So one strength can sometimes diminish another area. And, and I think that's what you have to look at. What, what am I good at? What am I really great at? And then how do I work around that? But in a perfect world... You'd like to be a hybrid and a blend of all of it. You'd like to hit it as far as possible. You'd like to be the best long iron player, the best mid iron player, and the best wedge player, and putt it like Ben Crenshaw at his best, right? But that's not necessarily, it's not that that's not possible. We do have a mindset of where you can't necessarily do that, the best do this, the best do that. But I do think we're going to get to the point where gradually over time, people will become proficient enough in all the areas that you you are going to see scores more trending towards the high 50s the low 60s a lot more often but there's definitely a distance bias it's only useful if you can hit it straight but if you can hit it straight and you can hit it far and you can hit it high that's uh that's huge dramatic competitive advantage is exploited that point yeah, yeah, yeah right uh last question on separating skills you've unpacked the physical you've also men- mentioned in fact in an earlier piece the golf iq quotient in addition to the necessary need for confidence, that bravado, that what we see, the boys on the driving range showing up to the PGA Tour, the top 10 in the world, the guys that are riding on this air of confidence, they've got a wheelbarrow and they're carrying their boys around yeah. in a wheelbarrow, aren't they? Yep. But yet at the same time, you have to tee it up on Thursday or in whatever day your first round is and you've got to deal with what? You've got to deal with that pressure. In your experience, how do your best players, whether they're junior or elite professionals on the PGA Tour, deal with, cope with that pressure? That's a great point. Well, the first thing is, I think it's to make it something that they should expect to Mm. have. Don't be like, it's a bad thing. Like a lot of things is like getting angry or getting scared or being worried. They're all things that inherently, like they've always, I think, traditionally been somewhat taboo or a sign of weakness, but it's like, no, embrace them. Have the understanding that that's normal. That's part of performing and playing and relish the opportunity to overcome that. And it's it's a state of mind in terms of, it's like anything. Once you've done it and you see it and you push through it, now it's like, okay, that's good. That's normal. If I don't feel that, well, maybe that's, that's, that's not good. And I think that these guys, especially who play, who've grown up playing tournament golf, whether you're a junior, whether you're AJGA, whether you're a college player, whether you're a mini tour player, you're playing on the web.com, a development tour, the European tour, on the PJ tour, you know every week that 
when that first round comes, it's it's time to go. There is pressure to perform, but you've done it so much, it becomes almost like an automated response. And if there isn't some butterflies and some anxiety and some excitement, then then maybe you're you're not ready. And I think that I always try and convey the to point to my players that that's a good thing. The more comfortable you become, the more you embrace it. I think the more that you tend to perform in that environment, I think if you try and fight it and you like, the, the, the greatest one is always, how do you feel? Oh, I feel great. I'm fine. I'm like, are you, are you, are you good? <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm great. As soon as you get that real quick response and they're like, everything's fine, it's like, oh, shit. And then everything is not fine. When you get, <laughs> the, get the fan, right? <laughs> yeah. When, once you get the more sort of subdued response yeah it's kind of cool and they're like and the subject changes is onto something else i'm like okay well we're in a good spot mm-hmm. but it's like the the denial is always is always a bad thing so i tell everybody like those things that you're going to experience as a true professional it's it's becoming comfortable with that and enjoying the opportunity because you're not always going to have it and every time you go out is a chance for you to perform and like you've prepared if you've if i've done my job as the coach I've given you the tools to prepare so that when you go to play golf, that's the fun part. It's like, man, this is exciting. I'm enjoying this. I'm kind of anxiety nervous, but like a good nervous, not like scared nervous. And if you are, it's like, okay, that's normal. You should embrace that. So I always try and get my players to surround themselves or be around people that are older, that have been in that situation, and you can get some anecdotal like stuff from them, a little mm-hmm. bit of mentoring. Not every player is willing to be vulnerable. Vulnerability as a player is massively important to your growth and development because you have to be willing to get input from other people and other experiences. And once you know somebody else has been through it and they've accomplished it and they've pushed through, it's like, okay, well, that now I can kind of see, oh, I see how you did that. And so that's those are the things that I always say to people. That stuff's all normal. Enjoy it. Figure out your recipe for working through it. And once you do, you'll have a big sense of accomplishment and you, you'll be like, okay, I'm ready to go. I'm, I'm, I feel it. It's normal. It's good. And the better you play, the more that's going to happen. And that's the other thing. I'm like, get used to it. Because when you come to Sunday and you're going off in the last group, just turn that up about 100% from where you are now and that's what you're going to feel. Yeah, and yeah. so so it's one of those things. You, I think over time you become more comfortable and I think that's one of the things if you look at Tiger in his heyday, he was so resilient to like, he was in this world of like, I can remember walking by him many years, I mean, just like stoically, just like you wouldn't even see you. Do you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. he was in this zone or this world of him and that's how he performed and whatever you got to do to get it done. Sure. Again, being great, and performing is not a is not a personality contest or a like friendship. It's like what you need to do to go to battle to be good. It's not battle at all, but like to perform for you. And that's whatever it is, my job as the coach is to help you create this persona for yourself that allows you to be super resilient, to go perform, be ready to perform at any time, and have the self-belief that I know I'm going to execute. And I'm going to do well. It's going to be tough out there. There's going to be bad stuff's going to happen. I'm going to have to weather it. But I have the tools and the skills because I've prepared to be able to to get through that and sustain momentum and build momentum and sure. finally post a score. Questions on practice. I have a few of them. And we could certainly spend an hour and a half, two hours or an entire seminar, right? A full day, eight hour day talking about practice and optimizing for a 
from a general standpoint and then also talking specifically about a player. But to kick it off, I think for those that haven't worked at the level of the game that you work at and see it from the outside, give us a perspective on your Monday through Wednesday, the objectives that you have and how you uh, meet or achieve those objectives such that you know uh, you have a good feeling in your mind and your heart that your player or players are ready to go by the time Thursday comes. This would be an ideal week. So as you well know, when you're coaching athletes, nothing is ideal and there's lots of variability in what's going to happen, right? There's some other outside influences. But essentially Monday, you get to an event on a Monday, Monday afternoon, it's fairly casual. It's a little bit of a debrief always of what happened last week. So my guys... A lot of them have a statistician, Mark Hortz, great guy, English guy. So we get a report very objectively, what you did well, all based on the strokes gained. If they made the cut, you essentially get this printout of everything that they did. So I know objectively what they did well and what they didn't do well. But I'm always very interested to see subjectively interpretation interpretation (laughs) of what they think they did well. And so the tough part is always now going back to our earlier part about communication is how do you deliver if they are completely oblivious to statistically what went bad and what didn't go well and are they skewed so the first thing is i have to create the right reality to now when this is what we need to work on now as a rule of thumb you're hoping that their core issues are always going to be their core issues and at that point in time you're working on their golf swing or the part of their game and you're you're always working on something so you kind of try and go to that but first off is the debrief get their feedback okay based on the data their feedback you now create the reality of what's really gone on okay well what are we going to do what's our plan of attack to remedy this and if it needs it you know or what do you think about this then the view, first day is fairly a light session. We, if, it, if it's something, let's say the bunker game is not very good. We may go, hey, why don't we go hit some bunker shots? Last week I saw that you, you, know, you were two of six out of the sand. Let's go in the bunker and then we may look at, okay, well, what are the always in every shot that you're working on or every skill, what are the things here? What are the principles that we need to have to happen for you to be able to, to hit this shot well? And is there something that's glaringly obvious set up ball position in a bunker? Are you opening the club face enough? Are you exposing the bounce? Blah, 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 right? So that's a Monday. Whatever it might be, you work on that. Tuesday, generally speaking, it'll be 18 holes or nine holes, depending if the golfer's in the pro-am. We're going to warm up on the range a little bit. We're going to work on what they're doing in their swing. Do they have adequate ball control? Are they able to hit their shot? Is it coming out? 80% of the time, is there some consistency to it? Okay. If not, do we make some adjustments? But it's never particularly invasive at that point unless it's really going sideways. Now we're going to go on the golf course and we're trying to learn the golf course. What's the strategy? And so my guys generally have a plan based on their skill set. This is kind of your game plan for the week. Um, We come up with that with Mark um, Hortz based on their essential skill set like what are their strengths what do they do well like this week you need to hit this number of fairways for you what's the recipe necessary for you to shoot the winning score then we we obviously learn the hole what are the scoring holes what are the holes that you need to 
really pay attention to? Where do you need to hit it on those holes? Is there, is there anything kind of crazy? Lots of chips and putts from around the greens. Like where's the chipping areas? Where where do you want to avoid? So again, you're trying to create familiarity. It's re um, reconnaissance essentially. Of you're you're basically scouting the golf course. Yeah. Then we go go back to to the range. If there's multiple players, you're doing this with multiple players. So again. Time management becomes extremely important. Well. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're trying to juggle the players. Some players want to go first. Some players don't care. So there's all types of other things. Some players don't want to play practice around with other players. players. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a personality management too, right? So it's herding cats, so to speak, a little bit. Um, so once you've kind of got, done the coursework, then it's often like, hey, let's go practice. And now it's, okay, is there anything that wasn't, particularly good that you didn't like and so tuesday is going to be my more monday i'll tiptoe around it a little bit depending on where we're at tuesday afternoon is probably the time that we'll do some real work wednesday's pro-am day or practice day is much lighter they're just we're now trying to get more into the we're going to play in the golf tournament we're the golf course is our focus. It's a little less, more on the technical, more on the like, let's paint pictures of shots, let's hit shots, let's let's try and have successful outcome, let's play the course on the range, let's use a lot of random practice, not much block, as in not much ball beating, more different clubs, caddy's got the laser, we're going to shoot stuff, we're on the golf course, we'll focus obviously, go do some putting, some, not to say that we wouldn't have putted on Tuesday, that Tuesday afternoon, we might spend time doing that. But Tuesday's more technical, like the grind. Wednesday's more the, okay, we're kind of easing into the, out of the left side of the brain, use an old adage, into the right side of the brain. There's a lot more of the play competitive, unless there's anything compelling that really needs addressing. And it's, again, creating that confidence, the... A lot more coaching, a lot less teaching on a Wednesday. Increase the level of certainty that what they have on Wednesday is going to be Absolutely. good for what they need on Thursday. 100%. And so I think it's also like they always want it to be amazing and a, a great, but sometimes you've got to make them realize that their good is good enough. And, right. that, and that, that's the important part. It's like, okay, well, this is really good. This looks good and you're executing it at 80%. You're able to hit the shots on call. You're not missing a shot. How do you feel? Oh, that looks really good. And so, you know, some of the best coaches are really good at he's making the player, excuse me, feel comfortable and confident. And then Thursday morning, go time. It's a warm-up. It's again, now it's it's trying to just ease them into it. If there's something drastic and it's a lot of times you be on a range and you can give them a nugget that they can go with and they can take that. But you're hoping and praying loosely, but you're standing behind them on the range and it's all pretty good. Now yeah, right. at the same time. I've seen plenty of great, amazing range sessions, and the score has been horrific. And then I've seen pre-round warm-ups you're talking about, yeah. right? Yeah, likewise. <laughs> and I've seen some of the worst warm-ups post low sixties. So I mean, it's like <laughs> at that point, a it's a pat on the butt and right. say, "Yeah, grit it out." <laughs> Absolutely. So, but some players are like, it's one of those things. Some players just know that they're going to play well, and they have that self-belief, and they don't really care how they hit it. And it's like. A lot of players, it's a warm-up, don't care. Like, they'll frame the situation and reframe it really well. And, mm -hmm. I, and I think that's indicative of great players. If the warm-up's great, great players are like, man, I'm hitting it good, I'm going to play good today. The warm-up's bad, and it's just a warm-up. It doesn't mean anything. Beautiful, isn't it? I'm just going to, you know, it's all right, I'm going to be great, I'm going to play well today. And they believe it. And so, again, it's that. That's the difference between the greats and the, like, the kids that, I coach that are, I'm trying to develop, 
If it's good, everything's good. If something's going to go wrong, it's now like frightening. Doomsday. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, no, the world's ending, right? Managing that perspective is so critical and Huge. underreacting in situations that you could otherwise go the complete oh, 180, the opposite direction you have is to massive. Be the calm in the storm. Yeah. And so the, the tough part is a lot of times the players will feed off your energy and depending on the relationship and where it's at, sometimes that can be great, sometimes that could be bad. And, and every every player is different, but you've you've always got to be overly positive to the point where a lot of players are going, man, that's so cheesy, I can't believe you're being... I'm like, hey, listen, being positive is going to yield way better outcomes than anything else. So it's like you're always got to be the calm in the storm, you've got to be the rock, you've got to be positive and you've got to, you've got to encourage them. And like even when they're trying to go down the woe is me, yep. you've always got to bring it back to, man, this is a great opportunity. You're so good at this. This is the sort of stuff. And so you you try and bring back – that's when the storytelling comes in a little bit. Rehash, and right. Some of those analogies <laughs> that you bring back of times when they've done this. You remember the time when you were doing that? And so th- th- those are things that you have to kind of – pull out a little bit. And I think there's some coaches that are way better than that than others. And again, it, it depends on how receptive the player is to yeah. it. But those are things that to me, that's a typical Monday to Wednesday. Then you get into the tournament. And again, in the tournament rounds, it's the same thing. Like how do you, after the round, how was it? Sometimes if it's great, do you want to do anything? No, I just want to go relax. And I, I, a lot of times I'm a huge proponent of once the tournament starts, I want them. My goal is if they are in contention on the back nine on Sunday, I've done my job. Mm-hmm. I can't hit the shots. That's how you frame success. If I, when I say frame success, is ultimately silverware is going up, mm-hmm. but or crystal, whatever the trophy might yep. be. But sometimes a jacket. I'm, yeah, jackets <laughs> are good. You got, you got one of those. Um, jackets are good, but no, putting them in position to have a chance to contend. That's what it's all about. Because then it's between them and the golf course, and then then it's like that's the opportunity they should relish and they should want to be in, and they're like. Now it's them, golf course, golf ball, how do I tunnel in, what's this, the score I can shoot? And, that, and that's, at the end of the day, that's the fun part for us as coaches is you want to look and you want to see your guys contending. And when they're contending a lot, obviously they're doing a lot of things that are good and you like to think that, hey, I've contributed towards that. But at the end of the day, we're all only as good as our players. The players are the ones that do it. And that's so right. to, to help them play well, we just have to help them prepare. And that's my job is to give them the tools to be successful. Yeah, sure. Great. Awesome answer. A uh, couple of quick hits. And this may be, you could generalize, and it may be exclusive responses to the skill level. I'm not too sure. But is there an area that you see players spending far too much time on in practice? Time wasters. Yeah, lots of people, especially on the PGA Tour, there's lots of people who are far more intent on being social than they are getting their head down and working. So, <laughs> Knuckle down. Um, I'm a lot more of the... F- so Get in, know, get out, and get on with it? Yes. I mean, it's the same analogy with uh, cardiovascular training. The research is out. You can do HIIT training and get the same response as you can do with long aerobic work, right? So I'm like, I'd much rather have your focus for a short period of time and be very effective Mm -hmm. and have rest. If we've done our job properly, you've actually done it before you even got to this golf tournament. Efficiency over effort, basically. 100%. The, the days of just staying out there to stay out there are completely pointless. Mm-hmm. Like if, if your game's not in a great spot, you're going to need as much mental resiliency as possible. Mm-hmm. You need 
the energy level to be able to sustain that. So I'm like- It's going to be a battle. Yes. <laughs> you better rest up for that battle. 100%. So it's trying to be smart. Again, again, it's always about framing the situation. So I see a lot of people like more interested in socializing. Um, I think that have a plan, go work your plan and then out and then leave and get away from the environment so that you can completely switch off from it so that now you're you're doing something to where you go back Okay, I'm fresh. I'm done. The, the the more time you spend at golf tournaments. So in 2008, Robert Carlson was arguably one of the best players. He finished top ten in all the majors. Coolest experience. One of my coolest golf experiences ever was a uh, uh, Tory Pines. I was walking around that round on the when he played with Tiger and Tiger hold it from everywhere. And he was playing on a broken leg. It's quite mm-hmm. one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. But anyway, the most significant thing about that year was that Gareth Lord, who's now uh, Henrik Stenson's caddy, super caddy, great guy. We would do all our work before the tournament. We got to Tory Pines. We were basically playing nine holes a day. We were at the golf course. We literally probably practiced for 45 minutes, went and played our golf. As soon as we were done, we did some putting drills and we were out and we did that every day. That's the efficiency that I I think when you get to a tournament, that's what you want to see. That's not always perfect, but that's – and that year, that was the theme. It was we've done the work ahead of time. You get to the golf tournament and you're there as little amount of time possible, enough to do your work, but then you're gone. And I think when I look at Tiger, that's what I used to see with him too. He'd be there, sun up, he's out by lunchtime, played the same every day. It was the same routine, but you got to get away. You're like, it's, there's, you don't need to just be there for a big volume amount of time because you're not really accomplishing a whole lot. You're just wasting time and wasting energy. So it's like, have your plan with your coach, whoever your coach is, if you're a a college player or your junior player, have a plan, stick to it and know that, okay, trust the plan and that's what I'm going to do. And I think that's really important. What are the pieces of a good plan? Are you, are you referring to number of balls hit? Are you referring to tasks that would then yield measurable like skill? Yeah, I think so. One of the things, it's like, can you do you feel like you've got your ball control that you need? At will, are you able to just dumbing it down to like simple – at will, can you hit the shot that you want to hit? Is it there? Do you feel confident that you can do it? And can you pick the club up and know that through the bag you're going to be able to do it? If yes, okay, then us hitting more balls and doing more preparation is purely wasting energy level. The exercise at that point. At that point. So the great thing, we didn't have tools like TrackMan back in the day, but now mm-hmm. if you can run through a set it up, you've got your – you can program it for in score center for whatever you want. Okay, here's my random spit my numbers out. I'm at 90%, 95. That's pretty damn good. Okay, well, what's Back the in. point in just so, so there's some measurables that you can use to do that. Mm-hmm. You can do it with wedge game. We I've used score center a lot with different players, but mm-hmm. essentially I'm trying to get them in and out. Their plan is based on their strengths. Can they do what they need to do? Do they make putts? Are they standing over there? A lot of the drills we use for putting are strokes gained orientated. Mm -hmm. So like a four, six, eight, they have to make six out of nine. That's based on strokes gained. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if they're going through their drills, whatever they may be, and they're able to do them, then that's they're creating a fact, they're confident. Well, there's no point. Like This is not the time to work on your game. The time to work on your game was... Last week and prep yes, for the event. <laughs> absolutely. And so that's what I that's what you strive to do. And those are ideals. Now the real world of coaching, it doesn't always happen like that. And no. you're dealing with 
athletes. So conversely, is there an area in your observation you feel like players don't spend enough time on? That well, remains let, the hanging let's, chad. Let's let's be honest. Even at the elite level, very rarely do people practice what they don't like and what they're not good at. The true greats will work at crafting the things that are perhaps weaknesses or not good at and improve them. I think Tiger was really good at that. When he first came on tour, his distance control and his wedges weren't that competent. Mm -hmm. And then he became arguably one of the best at it. So again, I see a lot of players practicing or doing, if they're a good ball striker, I see them on the range working on their ball strike. And even though they may have been negative two strokes gained for that day putting. So the argument is, okay, well, you need to keep your strengths, but I would always work on what needs improving and where can you have the most meaningful gain to get better. And a lot of players aren't aware enough of their statistics to be able to do that. I mean, shot link data is phenomenal to us as a coach because it's like, here's a glaring problem. New player comes to you, they tell you what their issue is, and you're like, well, actually, here's the data and here's this, so why don't we work on this? And so I think a lot of times those are where can you, you know, your podcast earn your edge, but where can we get an edge on where can we improve you? Right. I think you've got to work on the areas. And I see lots of people that I know what they do. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, why are you practicing that? You're already really <laughs> good at class. that. You positive four strokes gained approach. And I'm watching you laser like seven irons. And I know that you cannot get it up and down out of a bunker. I'm like, seriously, what, what are you doing? Or you, you're a terrible putter. And I never see that person on the putting green. Yeah. Another question, and this may seem odd coming at it from this direction, but who's good at playing at a professional level that you've either coached or come across in observation practice rounds or maybe you just watched play golf, but by conventional measure or by looking through your lens, educated lens, doesn't make sense. They, quite frankly, it surprises you that they're sustaining a career on the PGA Tour. And on surface, the question seems like, wow, I'm selling someone under, like, under the bus here. But yet, on the other side, that's actually quite complimentary because they're getting it done with what on the surface may be a set of skills that really doesn't, one plus one does not equal two. And maybe it's not a name. Maybe it's a, maybe you can just allude to this player surprised me because X, they got it done with X. Oh, that's a great question. So first off, I'd say anyone that's on the PGA Tour, they're great at something. So that's, that. that's the, any, any professional tour you're dealing with the, one percent of the one percent, right? They're they're the best. So, who are players that that surprise me? That oh, that's a that's a great um, get a lot out of their ability, overachieve. And when you look at careers of of great players, maybe they've they've, they've since retired. I think of Mark Kalkovecchia, and this is no insult, but an amazingly one dimensional player, who when you looked at him play, he wasn't the person that attracted a lot of eyeballs in my mind. I certainly didn't jump over fences and um, battle galleries to watch him play. But I did watch him play. I watched him play enough to gather an appreciation for what I thought average looked like. But in fact, the misconception was it was world-class. And he made it world-class because he did it so his way, so one-dimensionally. Billy Mayfair, his putting stroke, could be thrown into that same category. And on surface, again, it seems like, well, you're insulting them. No, no, no. I'm complimenting them. Those are the two players that stick out in my mind historically. So one that would come to mind that you you wouldn't necessarily think of, and a lot of people may not know, well, Eamon Darcy would be one. Mm-hmm. Or the search, European search or, that golf swing on If anyone YouTube. wants to look at that golf swing, I mean, that, that would be um, for sure, because that's the first one that comes to mind. You're like, seriously, this guy, this guy plays the tour. What did he, he have? I mean, it was... 
this huge it was just he here's here's what i think he had i think he had an amazing ability to new club face awareness was amazing Paramount. off the charts just like just incredible like there's some players that i don't i think you could almost tie their hands together and they still figure a way to deliver the club to the ball so Eamon darcy if you, anyone looks at it i mean it is literally all over the place but his his club face control is incredible on the on the PGA Tour, I think that anybody that is, to me, short in distance, mm-hmm. but has made a lot of money and has performed really well latterly, not to name any names, and there's a few out there, I think those players, to me, are, are really inspiring because they break the mold, they break, they break the norm, and they're, they're very good at being able to compete. I, I think that... Those are people that a lot of times we associate with golf. Another way to look at it is that when you hit a golf shot, it sounds really good and it's going to make this noise. And if anyone's heard Tiger or Dustin and you, you hear them hit the ball, it sounds incredible. But there's a lot of guys on the PGA Tour that kind of nudge it around that make a lot of money. Indeed. That are super, super consistent. Um, this is That's the purpose of this question. The purpose of this question is to illustrate and illuminate the point that we get so caught up in the window of watching golf through only the lens of who's on the leaderboard, only on the only through the lens of who does the media or the press talk about. And it's the longest hitters and it's the best players. But yet, in order to play PGA Tour, European Tour, LPGA Tour level golf, you can get it done with something less than what the leaders may possess. You can clank it around a little bit as long as you have just good enough. And so my message to listeners is oftentimes or to students is oftentimes go look at what the journeyman professionals are able to earn a massively, massively or an amazing living doing week in and week out a career of golf, 10, 15 years with what doesn't attract much attention, but they know that they can do themselves, play their own game and still achieve some great results. That's the, that's the purpose of that question. Yeah, no, I I definitely think that, you know, Players like David Hearn come to mind. Australian uh, Nico Hearn mm-hmm. comes to mind. Like mm-hmm. like players that are you wouldn't necessarily know, but they like they're great players. They they play really well. They score great, and you just you don't hear of them. And so the tough part is when you when you look at the players. There's so many of them that you to your point you're attracted to the things the wow factor but the it factor is like can you get it in the hole whyever gets the ball in the hole the quickest is the best player and mm-hmm. that studying the unicorn so to speak or the players that are i mean furick's amazing doesn't absolutely amazing. stricker's amazing mm-hmm. like they're guys that you don't doesn't come off the golf club sounding like wow it mm-hmm. sounds like kind of clanky but like good they're yeah. still good ball strikers don't right. get me wrong it's tough but they are so good at managing their game and getting the ball round the golf course. Those are the guys that I'm studying when I'm on the range, killing time. When I'm on the range, waiting for a player, I'm not looking at, well, no, no insult to DJ. I'm not looking at DJ. I've seen DJ up close and personal. The other guys, the guys that get it done, the journeymen, those are the, those are the folks that I'm looking at. Uh, final questions. You've been overly generous with your time. If you were advising a parent or a player how to seek out a coach, what couple of points would you make? 
number one is obviously you want you want a resume, you want somebody that's got a, a pedigree of like helping players and being successful. But at the same time, you also want access. So the more successful somebody is, is how much access are you actually going to get to that person? And so for us that are super busy, a lot of times we turn players down or we refer them to other coaches, not because we don't want to coach them, because we can't in good faith take on the responsibility to coach them if we don't have adequate time to do it. So I think the amount of time that you allocate to somebody is very important. And when you're looking for a coach, a good coach is going to, is, is not going to be cheap, but you also want to have quality time with that coach because if the coach is really good, the more time you spend with them, there is a high likelihood that they're, the student is going to improve. And if you look at the time we spend with tour players, we spend lots of time with them. So you get time to give information and you get to, to, to feed it to them at a certain amount of speed. If you go with the traditional model of I'm just going to get a lesson, a three hour lesson every three or four weeks, well, that's not necessarily conducive to really developing a skill or learning because now the student gets a lot of information in one sitting and they're overwhelmed and they can't process it. Whereas seeing a coach more often and having more access to a quality coach with a proven record that has the right amount of time for you, that's massive. So I'd say get in a coaching program for somebody that has a coaching model, not just a teaching model. They need to get on the golf course with you. They need to see you play and they need, they, you need to kind of study what you do so they can help you perform better. It's like the 30-minute lesson, quite frankly, is just like, well, okay, I can see what you're doing here, but I don't know what the translation to the golf course is or what you do or what your shot-making skills are. No matter what I try and produce in practice, it's very hard for me to get a rendering of what you do on the course. And so, again, that takes time. And does the person have the time to be able to dedicate to you? And are they committed to you? And I think if you're searching high performance, it's a very different animal to just trying to go play golf. If you want a true high performance, I think there's a few select individuals that excel at it. And you need to seek those people out if that's what you truly want to do, because that's going to give you such a leg up in your sort of journey to, to getting that high performance. Beautiful. Finally, a really important one. Where can people learn more about you? Okay. Yeah. So we have a website, blackburngolf.com on there. You'll get a kind of idea about our coaching codification, our academy at Greystone in Birmingham. Then also I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Blackburn Golf. And so a lot of stuff out there informationally as well. So I'll be presenting at the World Golf Fitness Summit this year if anyone's going to be at that. So lots of different ways. There's lots of stuff out there on social media, but the, the main thing would be through my website and through, uh, through social media. And then obviously hitting me up, questions, emails, mark at blackburngolf.com. Feel free to reach out. On behalf of all the listeners, on behalf of anyone that has come into contact with you in the past and has received the benefit, which uh, thousands have, or will come into contact with you into the future, thank you so much for your time. You shared a wealth of knowledge nuggets that'll take probably three or four listens per person. So I appreciate that for them to um, discern all that they possibly could discern out of the conversation. And there's a reason why you've been successful on the PGA Tour. There's a reason why your past and present client list includes Kevin Chappell, Ches Reevy, Harris English, John Peterson, Tyrone, Van Aswegen, Chad Cable, Y.A. Yang, Andrew Putnam, Hudson Swafford, and the list goes on, ladies and gentlemen. But check out the website. Uh, hit Mark up. Uh, he is overly accommodating with his time, and he's cut out of the same cloth as we are at Altus. 
we are here to serve the purpose of, of player improvement, of uh, personal development. So hopefully enjoy this conversation with Mark Blackburn. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge. 